Hi, I'm Michael G. Williams, and welcome to Social Distancing Radio. I'm a novelist, and a reader and friend asked if I would read from my work as something they might find comforting and familiar amidst the uncertainty and anxiety we're experiencing from multiple sources in 2020. As of this opening, I've read Perishables, the first book of my five-book vampire and urban fantasy series, The Withrow Chronicles, published by Falstaff Books, aka falstaffbooks.com. If you'd like to pick up a copy for yourself, head over to bit.ly, that's bit.ly, slash perishables link. Now I'm reading from my short stories and other works, and occasionally I'll invite on a writer friend for special episodes called Public Domain Radio. Thanks for listening. Okay, y'all. I am back to read Complications. I think I have my audio set up good now. At least my initial test went quite well. And I've got my microphone arm set up, and I think everything is good to go. So first, let us start with the ceremonial reading line, because that is as important to me as it is to you. It has been quite a week. Mm. That is good stuff. Let me tell you, thank you very much, Boda Box, because they make the good stuff. At the very least, they make the writerly stuff. So, I'm going to read Complications. It'll probably take me three readings, possibly four. And then, true to the vote on Patreon... I will read Dracula. So that's going to be a lot of fun. I'm really looking forward to that. I'm probably going to do Dracula as like, well, it is the time of year to read Dracula. And so I'm going to read Dracula. That's the way it is. So um, let's get this started. I'm going to start complications by saying this is what is called a machine of death story. Machine of Death is a subgenre of science fiction. It can be historical fiction. It can be all kinds of things. But it always has to intersect with science fiction a little bit for the following reason. It has to include the concept of machines, which, through a simple blood test, can tell more or less immediately the means of death of the person whose blood has just been tested. The basic concept of a machine of death story uh, or of the machine of death itself is that somebody can walk up, stick their finger in it, it pricks their finger, and their means of death prints out on a little card in big block letters. That means of death is accurate. It never changes, no matter how often the person gets tested. But it is often grimly ironic and Machine of death stories traditionally include a notion that the machines may enjoy fucking with us. So um, that's how machine of death stories work. Every machine of death story is named after a means of death someone in this, that applies to someone in the story. And there were a couple of anthologies of machine of death stories. This is one that I wrote to submit to the second anthology. You know, made it 
past the initial reading but did not get picked up, and that is okay. I love this story, and so it has turned into my favorite story to read at conventions. I just read it tonight, or today, uh, in a pre-recorded reading for the Sci-Fi Lit track at DragonCon for DragonCon Goes Virtual, and I really enjoy the story, and I'm going to really enjoy reading it to you. So, let's get started. This Machine of Death story is called Complications. A shopping mall in the early 1980s. Buck came tearing back in from the lobby, his face red and his lumberjack arms pumping in time to the chug of his legs. He yanked off his clip-on tie, pointed a big pink frankfurter of a finger at me, and hissed, Lobby, now, customer. Normally he barked his orders, but something had him frightened, and I had never seen that, not even once during my two years in his employ. Mark shot me a look, eyebrows raised as though to say, Well, 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 someone's a bit huffy. His eyes twinkled with amusement. I hated Mark a little when they did that. Everything about him could twinkle if he wanted it to. Buck didn't even stick around to see if I'd obeyed him. The door to his office shot open and would have shot closed if it had been hung properly in the first place. Instead, he had to fuss with the handle before it would latch, taking some of the heat out of what he clearly wanted to turn into a good hard slam. I let myself smile just a tiny bit at that, checked my tie in the big mirror, and spritzed Banaka on my tongue. Mark clicked his cheeks and winked at me. Go get him, tiger. The lobby of the store was wallpapered a relatively inoffensive cream, but over that was a complicated interlocking pattern of elaborate and poorly defined plants falling all over one another. The attempt had been made to depict bouquets that were bursting with lurid blossoms so busy the eye wouldn't notice how quickly the pattern repeated or where the symmetries were wrecked by a poorly placed seam. The furniture, all love seats, was patterned to match in the way magazines said the homes of rich women had been decorated in spring of the year before. The lighting was low, mostly lamps with 40-watt bulbs and thick shades casting sharp pools of light. A French marketing firm had designed the whole effect a year ago. The pitch was that their psychologists put together a space that would seem welcoming to someone tired of walking around the mall, but would also make them feel lonely. Seating for two occupied by individuals, pink and gray blossoms in the wallpaper to suggest the hair and skin of someone aged past his or her prime, and bright lights right at the level where a client could notice their own wrinkled hands while they filled out the questionnaires. It was the trap we laid for lonely hearts, and it worked. Those French guys know their stuff. Our sign in the mall corridor over the store's entrance read, Till death do us part, in flowing script stamped out in plastic. It sagged in the middle and needed dusting. Every day when I came to work, I tried to affix an apostrophe to the front of that first word through sheer force of will, but it never worked. The woman in the lobby looked familiar to me, but so did many of the women who came here. This was because they all looked so much like one another, of a certain age, dressed well enough to afford a computerized dating service, and wearing their dyed hair up in one of those hairspray constructions, and wearing their dyed hair up in one of those hairspray constructions suggesting an elegant whirlpool. She was daubing at her eyes with the paper tissue she'd pulled from her over-the-shoulder handbag decked out in tasteful buckles. 
She was obviously upset, but more than that, she looked plain bad. She looked like she hadn't slept right in a week. I put on my best sympathetic smile and slipped into the rattan employee chair across the slender glass-topped coffee table. I'm Jean. Welcome to our store. Is everything all right? Buck asked me to assist you. The woman's face puckered at the name, and she smiled a sour little smirk. I'm sure he did. He ran out of here when I had to remind him who I am. She cleared her throat and batted big fake lashes against her cheek. She'd been very careful not to mess them up with the tissue. My name is Gloria Everett. I'm here to see if there are any new matches for me. She took a second run at smiling, this time aiming for sweet and maybe even a touch coquettish, no matter what year was on her driver's license. And I smiled back. Smiles make everything better. There's a page in our employee manual saying so, and it's the only true thing in that whole binder. Let me go and check. I'm... I hesitated. I didn't know quite what to say. I'm sorry that Buck couldn't help you. I'm sure he must have had an emergency. Gloria started to scoff. Oh, I'm the emergency. He and I... She blushed. We dated. I looked at her for a moment, and it dawned on me. One of Buck's bags. He liked to talk about them in hunting terms. Mark and I privately called these women roadkill. Buck had a thing for going through the files, looking for women who matched his particular preferences. Not too young. Not too old. Not too freshly divorced or dumped. He liked them best when they were most worried they'd started to go a little stale on the counter. He said it made them, quote, grateful which is the worst thing I'd ever heard someone say without meaning it as an insult. Buck had racked up a lot of bags over the last couple of years. He'd left his youth in the 60s and his pride in the 70s. He was turning the 80s into a smorgasbord of one-night stands with our female clientele. It was grotesque. It was like hearing a bad joke in its hundredth retelling every time he walked into his office with a stack of file folders. We could hear him through that cheap hollow core door, calling them on the phone and giving them the same pitch. This is Buck from Till Death Do Us Part. I was doing some work going over potential matches for you, and, well, I don't quite know how to say this, but the computer suggested that we might be an excellent match. Mark and I giggled. Well, I giggled, and he chuckled. When we first caught on, but that turned into, into disgust over time. It wasn't that I was a prude by any means. Hey, we're big boys and girls. If there's no harm in it, then why not? I'm all for people having sex, trust me. But Buck was a mani- was such a manipulative old troll. To watch him snare a lonely woman with that song and dance was to watch a woman give up. Everything about Gloria suddenly made sense. I see, I said. Let me go to the back and find out if the computers have come up with anything new for you. It will just take me a couple of minutes. Feel free to relax, and I'll be right back. I gave her another friendly smile. No teeth. Never show teeth to someone who feels vulnerable. And disappeared into our office. Mark had been listening at the door. As I crossed the drab beige back room toward the filing cabinets to find her in them, he followed me, whispering, I remember her. She's one of Buck's first catches. Two years ago, maybe? Yeesh. He reflexively, habitually reached up and smoothed his hair away from his forehead in the mirror. Were they fighting? I found the folder and peeked inside while it was still in the drawer. Zilch in the way of prospects. There were no computers, of course. At least, not in the back. We turned their surveys into little bubble sheets with special pencils and sent those off to corporate, and a computer there supposedly shuffled the deck to make matches. 
But that only happened when someone first came in, and then once every couple of months after that. It was September of 1982, and the computer age was all around us, but the actual computers were all down the concourse at Radio Shack. Most of the time it was us playing matchmaker with whomever struck our fancy. The computers were big in the ads, though. Them and the whole bit about taking death predictions into account when we paired them up. That was the company's specialty, the thing that set it apart until everyone else copied them. We made new clients get a death test in a little alcove off to one side of the lobby and filed that with their paperwork. On the questionnaire, after all the stuff about hobbies and religious beliefs, they had the option of confidentially expressing a preference for someone whose death might coincide with their own. You know, stick together two car accidents who both hoped to die beside their eventual mate, or whether they wanted someone whose death would be radically different from their own. One time we got a guy in whose card read murder, and he wrote at the bottom of the questionnaire in huge letters, NO GUNS. I don't think he cared whether we set him up with his murderer, just as long as he didn't have to get shot when it was time to go. Now that is a man who has made peace with the fates. There was a very small print at the bottom of the questionnaire, specifying that due to computer error, and, I will always remember, the fickle ways of destiny, the company couldn't guarantee that they would find a match, or if they did, that everything, including their death, would go exactly as desired forever and ever. People didn't stop to read that, though. They didn't want to think about all the bad possibilities. They wanted to think about love and romance and getting laid. I shrugged at Mark, still hunched over the second drawer of ease. I don't know. He certainly didn't want to see her again, did he? The poor thing doesn't even have any new matches. Mark nodded towards Buck's office door. He probably buried her in there along with the rest of his private stock so he could go back for seconds like a dog with an old bone. Mark loved the giggly side of it a little bit still. I could tell, and that made me love it a little too. He's charismatic that way. You're a beast, I whispered. She's right here, but the only bone she's getting is dry. Now wish me luck. I'm going to give her the usual about a bunch of new matches being due any day now. Gloria's death prediction card slipped out of the back of her questionnaire and stared up at us from the floor. Cancer, just as big as life. Mark was quiet for a moment and then let out a low quiet whistle. Oh, I gasped. Bless her heart. I shot Mark a sideways look. She does look sick, you know. Well, that is the first part of complications. I had to pause recording several times because there were cat complications here in ye oldie studio, but I think we're through it now. So, Join me next time, and we will pick back up with complications. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. This podcast is released under Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License. The theme music is Bucked Contemporary Boom by Kara Square, available under a Creative Commons Attribution License at ccmixter.org. <laughs>